Hi, everyone. Welcome to this session. Um, this is How to Maximize the Impact of Your Climate Giving with Emily Tai. I'm Elika. I'll be the MC for this session. Uh, following Emily's presentation, we'll move on to a live Q&A session where Emily will respond to your questions. You can submit questions at any time through the swap card live discussion feature. And after 45 minutes, we'll bring the session to an end. Uh, now I'd like to introduce our speaker for the session. Emily is a manager at Giving Green, an EA-aligned climate charity evaluator. Emily's research, Emily's experience in climate includes early stage climate tech investing, local policy activism, wet lab research at MIT, and policy research at UChicago, including the research behind the Freakonomics podcast on deforestation. Now here's Emily. Hi, everyone. So great to be talking with you today. Morning for me, probably afternoon for some of you. I the joys of a virtual conference. As Alika said, I'm a manager at Giving Green. We do EA-aligned climate charity evaluations. So basically trying to help people who want to give to climate determine where they should give, what actual nonprofits should they be giving to. And today I'm just going to talk a little bit about what we do and how we suggest other donors who are interested in climate give. So first we'll talk a little bit about why climate change as an EA cause area or as something you should care about in general. We'll talk a little bit about the problems that we at Giving Green see in climate philanthropy today, and we'll talk about Giving Green's approach to identifying impactful giving opportunities. And then of course we'll get into questions. So why climate change? Can climate philanthropy actually be an unusually good way of helping the world? Um, since we're in an EA space, I'm assuming that these two resources don't really need any introduction, but Will McCaskill in What We Owe the Future says decarbonization can be a win-win-win-win-win, so obviously a good thing, and 80,000 Hours has actually also named climate change as one of the problem areas that they focus on. So we think that reducing climate change could be highly impactful for well-being of present and future lives. But these, this comes with sort of the flip side, which is McCaskill also says that decarbonization is the baseline. So other things, other especially long-termist activities are more impactful. And 80,000 Hours says something similar. Like if you're a person working on climate change, you might be doing a little bit less impact than you could be in other cause areas. This is probably familiar to a lot of folks here. But why do I still work on climate change? Why does Giving Green still work on climate change? It's because we think that there's still potential in the climate philanthropy space to move a lot of money that would be counterfactually not doing very much. This is because there's lots of money going into climate. We're seeing something like six to 10 billion globally right now. And this money is usually focused on climate. We talk to a lot of foundations and donors who know they want to give to climate. They're really cared about the environment. They really care about stopping climate change. And that money is not going to go to a different cause area. But a lot of them are not giving very effectively. We're seeing lots of not very cost-effective donations. Not going to name names here, but you'll probably see a lot of major foundations stepping into climate and giving to organizations everybody's already heard of that probably don't need that much more money. When that money, that six to ten billion dollar pool, could really be doing a lot. So there are specific and neglected opportunities that we think have room for more funding and therefore will shift this not very cost-effective money into doing a lot of good. So why is it that a lot of people in climate philanthropy are giving money maybe not as well as they could be? We think this is because climate advice is hard to come by. It's often inaccessible, inactionable, or just plain ineffective. So most people don't have access to quality climate advice. 
if you Google, how can I stop climate change? Try it. This is, this is actually what comes up. Um, you can bike. And I love to bike, but this is not something that is going to help me as an individual make progress on the systemic issues that are causing climate change. And so it's hard for me to think about what I should be doing with my resources. This is because climate research of the kind that we consider high quality and rigorous is often not very actionable, especially for an individual or for a foundation who doesn't have a deep background in climate. So at Giving Green, we believe that the best thing you can do to stop climate change is contribute to systems change. And for us, that's policy or technology, basically things that will change the way our system operates from a fossil fuel economy to a clean economy. This is hard for an individual person to do. How can an ordinary person contribute is something that is often, people come to us with this question often. It's like the difference between swapping out your grill at home from charcoal to electric to changing this coal plant here from being a coal plant to a renewable energy source. And it's clear to me how to do the one on the left, but maybe not the one on the right. And finally, a lot of climate actions are just ineffective. So there's just two examples here, but many, many more have been found through academic studies, investigative journalism. On the left, we see a study of well, reforestation efforts in Northern India, where this study found that decades of tree planting have had almost no impact not only not on the forest, but on the people who live there when such a program was in theory supposed to improve both forest cover and rural livelihoods. And on the right, we have a review from the EU of the United Nations Clean Development Mechanism, which was an offset scheme set in place by the Kyoto Protocol. And they found that a large majority of projects funded by this mechanism were actually not, not doing anything. So countries were paying into this pool, thinking they were reducing their emissions when in fact, they were not. So Given all of those problems, how do we think about um, giving and giving for the climate? First, we think that if you're interested in giving for the climate, you should be defining your focus. This is not so much a problem within EA as outside of EA, but we often talk with foundations who conflate climate change with things like environment, biodiversity, water quality. And these are all very, very related and often solving one can help solve the other, but they must be measured and measured and addressed differently because climate change is rising global temperatures. It's greenhouse gases, it's albedo modification, which is changing the reflectivity of the earth so that more energy leaves rather than comes in. Things like uh, conserving the environment and biodiversity and wild um, habitats are good, probably, but often not getting back to the root cause of climate change. And so we see people talking about climate when they're really talking about some of these other things on the left. The second thing that we suggest you do is to maximize your expected returns. Not, not unusual for anybody in EA, again. We're using impact evaluation tools to estimate the cost effectiveness of the charities we recommend. So that includes developing a theory of change for them and then testing each element of that theory of change using the academic literature. We do cost effectiveness modeling quantitatively, trying to get a sense of what the donation, what like an average donation to an organization means in terms of passing a bill and how much impact has that bill had. And the last thing we do is sensitivity analysis. So in the quantitative side, making sure that our models are robust to different assumptions that we put in about how effective an organization is or how impactful a bill might be. And so these are tools that we use often because like I said, we look at climate change as a problem of uh, policy and technology change. And this is something like passing policy, passing legislation, or increasing the rate at which technology is commercialized. 
And these are not really things you can run a randomized control trial on, which, which makes it difficult to measure, but we've honed this tool set and borrowed it from other folks in the impact evaluation space, and we think that it works pretty well. Third, find neglected spaces. Like we talked about, there is a lot of money going into climate, but we at Giving Green still believe that a lot of this money is going to places that don't necessarily need more money, in both in terms of the uh, geography of the intervention, which is what's on this slide here, and in terms of the type of intervention. So you can see here that despite making a making up a significant portion of emissions, places like China, India are not receiving a ton of philanthropic dollars to decarbonize. We think this is a problem. Even within the United States, you see that there's a lot of money going into certain sectors and maybe not as much going into others. For instance, we still think that technology um, speeding up the adoption, sorry, speeding up the adoption of novel technology to help decarbonize is still neglected within the United States, even though it's not shown on this chart. So basically find places where your money can still do good, despite the fact that there is a lot of money going into certain sectors of climate. And finally, target systems change. Um, like I've said before, we talk a lot about policy change rather than other methods to affect the climate. The example that we're giving here is with carbon offsets versus policy change. So many people, when they look at climate change, they think of, oh, can I plant a tree or like, can I offset my carbon emissions by buying into some renewable energy project? And our modeling, very uncertain again, but about order of magnitude shows that looking at policy change efforts is actually 10 times as effective as looking at something like purchasing a single carbon offset. And this is because policy change actually changes the rules of the game by which all the other players in this space are playing. Whereas a carbon offset is just marginally increasing the effect of one project, but not having ripple effects on how other projects get made and get built. So in sum, our four recommendations for how you should think about giving to the climate. Um, what do we do with that information at Giving Green? So our process has been sort of a five-stage process. First, we assess the philanthropy landscape to figure out where we might be most impactful, so where our team has a comparative advantage in assessing organizations. The second thing we do is identify important tractable and neglected interventions. This is a common framework used in effective altruist charity evaluation, basically Interventions to help stop climate change, are they going to be a big deal? Are they going to have a lot of impact? Are they realistic? Are they likely to happen? And are they neglected? So are they something that not a lot of other people are already working on where we can actually make a big difference? Third, we look at organizations in this space. So if we've selected an intervention, we start looking at, okay, who's working on this? And then who needs more funding for stage four? Who is has been an effective organization in the past, has been cost-effective in their work, and can we support them further? And then we publish those recommendations. So for donors who want to follow our four-step framework for climate giving and don't know where to start, maybe they need some more guidance, that's what we're here for. So oh, I already have a slide. Some of the tools that we use, sorry. Yes. So the example here that we like to give is the example of forestry. Like I said, there's a lot of organizations that um, like to plant trees or like say they're planting trees to help the climate. So we thought we should take a look at this space and figure out what's actually making a difference. So first we assess the philanthropy landscape in deforestation and reforestation efforts to figure out where, if and where we can be impactful. We found that the forestry space was very high interest. Lots of people want to plant trees. Maybe not so effective though, but that means there's a high potential for giving green to be influential because people want to give here, but are doing it not as well as they could be. The second thing we did was look at interventions to stop deforestation. 
And we found that direct tree planting efforts or conservation efforts were not as effective as things that address the root cause of deforestation. And in many geographies, that is actually livestock demand because ranchers tend to cut down trees in order to have more land to grow and graze their cattle because there is a high demand globally for meat. So we figured that the only way to address the root cause of deforestation would be to tackle this underlying cause. And so we actually think that rather than direct tree planting, which sort of hits around the margins of the issue, you should be addressing livestock demand. And we found that the most promising way to do that, as opposed to, say, um, trying to promote vegetarianism through culture or meatless Mondays in school cafeterias, we think it's through supporting alternative proteins. Then we made a list of organizations doing just that, figuring out how to support alternative proteins. Some of these might be familiar. This is not a comprehensive list of all the organizations we looked at, but just a few. And for each of those, we evaluated their theory of change, their cost effectiveness, and their room for more funding. That's a little chart there. And then finally, um, under construction coming soon. So we're going to select one of these organizations as part of our top charity list and conduct outreach for it to help other donors who are interested in deforestation shift their money maybe from less effective tree planting schemes to more effective organizations like these that work on the root cause of this issue. And I cannot tell you what that organization is yet, although I do know. So <laughs> at the end of this presentation, we'll have a link to our newsletter, and that's where we're going to announce when this recommendation comes out. So if you'd like to keep up with the latest, I highly recommend you sign up for that. But this is just one example of some of the work we do to help different people who care about the climate figure out where to put their money. This is what we call our top recommendations. So for a completely agnostic person, what should they do with their money? You should donate to one of our top charities. However, we also know that some people have specific constraints around where they like to give. We've worked with an Australian foundation who was willing to allocate a significant amount of money as long as the nonprofit was in Australia. So we think that's a great counterfactual impact for us where some donors really do not want to give outside their country. And so we do have recommendations specific for that. We also look at carbon removals and offsets. So I did just spend um, the majority of this presentation talking about how those are useless. However, there are businesses who need to be net zero and so they need to buy carbon offsets. Why they need to be net zero is you know, a question that um, we think is a little bit misplaced, but the fact remains that a lot of businesses have made these commitments. And so for businesses who need to be net zero, which offset purchases are actually going to be the best ones? That is something we also work on. And that sort of feeds into our broader business recommendations. And then finally, we have climate investments. And this is for people who are maybe interested in ESG investing, but I've heard it's a little bit of greenwashing. Maybe they're interested in investing in novel technology and how that might be made more accessible to your average retail small dollar uh, investor like you or me. And so we have some research out on that, on whether divestment works or ESG investing works or other impact investing opportunities works. And that's not something where we have specific recommendations for what you should do, but we do have guidance for what to look for in terms of like, how do you know if a fund is just greenwashing versus doing something real? And all of these come from our philosophy that you should be moving your money. If you have money in climate, you should be moving it towards interventions that are more cost effective and that are more impactful than maybe the default that you may have heard about. So that is it for me. Um, happy to answer any questions here. And like I said, if you want to sign up for the newsletter, I do have to do the shameless plug. And 
we are going to be announcing our new recommendations for this giving season around mid-November. So that will go out on that newsletter. And yeah, happy to talk further, answer any questions from Elika or from the audience, whatever you're seeing. Hey everyone. Um, so just a reminder that you can put questions in the live discussion in the chat section. Um, while I wait for more to be submitted, uh, we can start with the first one, which is in your evaluation calculations, do you consider fungibility and how, if so? Yes, so we do consider it. We don't have a formal, like, this is the quantitative way that we consider fungibility, but it's something that we think a lot about because obviously, you know, money moves around. So I can tell you, for example, that we just looked at a nonprofit a couple this month, it was pretty high up on our radar of lists of nonprofits that we thought were going to be impactful in a key area we've been working on. And we ultimately decided to not recommend it this year, mainly because of fungibility concerns, because they're a large organization. One portion of their work is something that we found very powerful. But if you give to that one portion, the overall organization will just move their own money around. And so there was no meaningful way to support that initiative alone. Do we look at fungibility does that answer the question or were you more interested in fungibility like across the climate space, not within an organization? I think that answers the question, but if anyone okay. has any follow-up ones, feel totally. free to put them in the chat. Um, the next question is, Heather would be curious to hear more about what you can say about the effectiveness of supporting efforts to change policy. Yeah, so supporting efforts to change policy. Let me see if I have something in the appendix here. But basically, we think that the reason policy is effective is because it creates all these other incentives around. Um, actually, no, none of these slides really work. But because it creates all these other incentives that then unlock things like private sector money. So, for instance, one good example that I know a bit about is a tax credit for carbon removal that just passed in the U.S. as part of some work that some of our recommended charities have been doing to advocate for it. And this has meant that a lot of private sector companies can do more carbon removal than they previously could and sell it for a price that helps them sustain their operations and therefore scale up that technology. So it's sort of a ripple effect where these companies were not profitable and were having trouble, you know, sustain, they, they weren't really having that much trouble, but companies were selling at a very, very high price that wasn't able to access a lot of the market demand for carbon offsets. With this tax credit, they can now bring down their prices because the government is helping them invest in that technology. And then more businesses, more purchasers can now purchase those carbon removal credits. And then you're increasing the market share for these organizations, helping them spend more money, take in more money, bring down the cost curve for their technology, and then scale up. So it's because policy creates this kind of ripple effect that we think it's going to be most effective. Um, I can talk a little bit about the quantitative modeling we've done there, but I think that probably answers the question. Feel free to follow up if that's helpful. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, feel free to add um, if Heather or anyone else, if you want clarifying questions, to add them in the chat. Um, a follow-up to the fungibility question is how do how do you think fungibility is considered across the climate space? Across the climate space. Um, I know I was the one who 
asked whether you were asking about this, and I actually don't have a good answer. If you want to reach out to me, I can definitely get back to you. I've been less involved in the research this year, and so I may not have the answers to the more sort of in the weeds questions about how we do our research. But if you shoot me an email, I'm happy to ask our research team and let you know. Right. Um, another question, um, Stacy asks, in the future, do you plan to expand into other activities that you may find out are more effective um, considering limited resources and the effectiveness of policy change? Do you spend time looking for alternative solutions as a charity? Um, I'm not positive what you mean by other activities. Is it things besides policy change or is it things besides climate change or things besides like what Giving Green does as research? I think looking at expanding all of those are, well, okay, other than climate change, because we are a climate change focused organization. But yes, I mean, looking beyond policy change is something we're already doing this year. We're looking a lot into efforts to make research grants and scale up new technology, you know, independent of whether policy is being passed. We're expanding outside of the U.S. to look more globally this year. Basically, a lot of this is dependent on our own research team's capacity. And like every organization, we do have to make decisions about where we think our comparative advantage is best. Last year, it was policy. This year, it's broadening a little bit more. And next year, we definitely hope to broaden it more. If that doesn't answer the question, Stacey, let me know. Yeah, she said things besides policy change. Oh, yeah. Then that's the answer. I think... We're very focused on um, systems change for sure, but policy change is only one portion of that. And this year you're going to see a lot more recommendations from us about technology and research that are related to policy, but can also be independent from policy. Yeah, that's super exciting. Um, the next question is, any comment on the potential for investing in green hydrogen? Ooh. I want to stick to what we have published, so I'm not going to comment on that. I don't know that we have like an organizational perspective on green hydrogen right now. Mm -hmm. And a follow-up to that is any comment on investing or in promoting good policy and regulation to facilitate the growth of the green hydrogen industry? Also will not comment, but these are really good questions. And I know green and blue hydrogen have been, you know, a hot topic lately, so... Hopefully we will have something on this soon, but I don't think it's coming out this year. Yeah, great. Okay, the next question is from Max and it says, many countries put a price on carbon emissions, a tax or a cap. Have you evaluated efforts to either implement carbon pricing in jurisdictions that don't have it yet or strengthen where it currently exists? Yeah, so um, we were founded by an economist. Take that for what you will in terms of support of carbon pricing. But I, I can only speak here to the U.S. and we've only looked at organizations that work on carbon pricing in the U.S. And specific to the U.S. context, this is very difficult because of the way climate change has been polarized and the way that U.S. citizens specifically think about taxes. Um, we're of the view that within the U.S. advocating for carbon pricing is not the smartest way to do policy change because it has failed in the past. If you look at things like the Waxman-Markey bill in, I think, 2009, that was the closest we got to climate policy in the U.S. before this year when we passed the biggest climate bill the U.S. has ever passed. And 
our take on this is that the political economy around carbon pricing is just not great, despite the fact that it would be a good solution if it were implemented. So, you know, the right doesn't like it because it's a tax and because they like their fossil fuels. The left doesn't like it because it's a tax and because they don't like market-based solutions. And it's a it's a policy where the effects are, the benefits are diffuse, but the hurts feel immediate. And so we haven't seen any organization that's been really, really successful in advocating for support of carbon pricing in the U.S. We're open to changing our minds on that for sure, but that's that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Great. Um, the next question I have is, are you aware of any frameworks for judging the effectiveness of biodiversity loss charities? Mm, I really wish I were. Um, I know there are some folks in EA working on potentially bringing in EA lands to biodiversity. I am not one of them. But yeah, I'm not aware. I'll just stop there. <laughs> That makes total sense. That's a super important question, and I hope somebody's doing it. <laughs> yeah. The next question from Matthew is, with the 45Q tax credit, in your calculation, did you include the increase in emissions that will, that will result from enabling coal plants to stay viable at 60 to 80% CO2 capture versus being replaced by the wind? Really good question and really, really complicated issue, and I see where you're coming from on this. Um, with 45Q, we didn't model the impact of the bill ourselves. We just used third-party analyses from think tanks who model bills like this for a living. We're, we're not those people. And so we're pulling estimates from like Rhodium or these other groups that actually have somebody sitting down and making a, what's it, um, clause by clause uh, calculation of what this impact will be. So I can't answer whether we did look at that for 45Q. If, if, it, if we did, it would have been folded into that third party estimate. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and if anyone has any follow-ups on that, feel free to put it in the chat. Um, Alexandra asks, any recommendations on first steps for getting into your area of work? Ooh, is my area of work climate? Is it EA? Is it operations, communications, and a little bit of research at a small organization? Um, <laughs> I think if it's a really good time to get into climate right now, if that's what you're asking, because there we've just seen this massive investment in the US, at least again, speaking as somebody sitting in the US, I know this is a virtual conference and there's a lot of energy in both the private and public sectors around bringing people into climate. There's resources like work on climate, like climate base that help people who are new to the space get oriented. In terms of what I do materially at Giving Green, I started off actually my career in a more technical role and I've moved more towards the operations side. And the way that I made that shift is by uh, working at a lot of small organizations where there aren't clearly defined roles and they need people to do a little bit of everything. And I found that to be very useful because I can try a bunch of stuff. I'm not sure which one of those answers your question. Maybe neither, maybe both. Yeah, we had a follow-up more specifically on getting in EA climate. EA climate. EA. Ooh, yeah. Um, we're probably going to be hiring next year uh, if, if, if this presentation sounded cool to you. Um, I think it's tough. There's a few organizations working on climate in the EA off the top of my head. It's like us, Founders Pledge is the other main evaluator. I know that, like... James Austin's Social Change Lab does some climate activism research. There's maybe a couple of others. So I think it's 
something where because the EA community can be quite tight knit, you probably want to be following these organizations. It's not hard to figure out who the people involved are and really just like network, right? I mean, I got my job because I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And that's just generic job advice. So <laughs> yeah, a large part of the value from EHGs and EHXs comes from networking yeah, within the community. Absolutely. Um, someone, um, Anna is asking if you have any resources um, on investigating biodiversity through an EA lens and more broadly, are there resources uh, within the climate space that you really recommend people check out? Biodiversity, not our area of expertise. Um, so I won't say Giving Green specifically has a stance on this. I do know that there are folks working on biodiversity in EA that there was a pretty recent post on the forum. If you just search within the EA forum biodiversity, somebody was had like a whole document that was much more comprehensive than my, my brain could ever produce on how to think about biodiversity from an EA perspective. So I would recommend that. In terms of resources about climate in general, again, my personal opinion here, not giving green, but I, I find Climate Tech VC's newsletter to be very helpful. It's private sector focused, but they'll do really good rundowns of like, here's the mining industry or like, here's the solar industry. For US politics, I really like Volts with David Roberts. I think he does like really good interviews that are exploring all sides of an issue. I like Hot Take also on US politics. Um, there's also, honestly, I, I feel bad doing this, but I really recommend that people just get on climate Twitter. Like I, I just learn a lot by being able to follow all these people who make this their living, so. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, the next question is James asks uh, two questions. The first is what are the major differences between domestic policy change and international climate change slash energy development? The major differences between domestic policy change and international energy development differences in effectiveness in like interventions. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that question. I think when we've parceled out these issues ourselves, when we first started looking into policy, we picked the US because our team was US based. Now we're looking more internationally, but it's not because of a domestic versus international distinction per se. It was just like, where are we finding that there are good opportunities for us to be influencing money and to be identifying neglected interventions? There's probably a better answer to this question and Again, if you email me, I can get back to you on that. But right now, nothing is coming to mind. I mean, obviously, yeah. there's a lot of differences, but. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, a follow-up question that you sort of answered is, does Giving Green do work on scaling up energy solutions for countries in the global south? And is this a viable pathway for donations? Yeah, I think... Um, Take the rest of this statement with a grain of salt because we haven't published our work on this yet. And so I'm not 100% sure this is where we're going to land. But yes, we are looking at this. I think it's very, very viable and very, very important to be looking at energy in the global south and avoiding, you know, carbon lock-in, as some people call it, with heavily polluting infrastructure for that energy. It's tough because our 
a lot of our audience is based in the US and so giving internationally can be difficult. And we thus far for sure have prioritized, actually I take those phrases back. We have not for sure prioritized this, but we have looked at and recommended organizations that work internationally and we have looked at and recommended organizations that work on promoting technology advancement in the US because we think that that has positive spillover effects on other countries. So if renewables get cheaper here, they are also getting cheaper on the global market, basically. So important, I don't have a strong confidence stance right now to give you on that front, but I think we will soon. Yeah, great. Um... The next question, uh, Max asks, how does your work overlap with the EA emphasis on air quality? Um, so for example, Openfill's India Air Quality Initiative. Yeah, the way we see it is that um, there are sort of positive spillovers, spillovers of each other where we're 100% focused on climate change. And to us, that's like warming. So temperature and greenhouse gases and albedo modification. That's not to say that, you know, replacing coal plants with renewable energy isn't good for the air, but it's just not something we're actively considering. So I would hope that there are synergies in terms of what to fund, but it's not something that's on our research roadmap as a thing to consider, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, from a practitioner's point of view, this is the next question from Alex. What sort of activities and approaches do you see as successful for policy change? I think we're of the perspective that policy change is really difficult and you need people working from all angles because you don't know in advance necessarily which one will work. Obviously, there are more and less effective ways to pursue policy change, but at a broad level, we think that you need, you know, you need lobbyists, you need people on the inside talking to the government, talking to legislators, convincing them to put this or that in the bill. You need people on the outside. You need activists that are putting public pressure on elected officials. And this is U.S. context, but applies to other democracies, I think, as well. You need those people who are like holding protests in the streets, who are sitting in a Nancy Pelosi's office, right? And I think that at a broad level, it's the, the ecosystem of all of these actors, both in terms of what kinds of policies they're fighting for and how they're doing it, that makes climate policy happen. And so we've looked across that spectrum, I guess. Yeah. Um, the next question comes from Brian. Um, it's a heavy hitter. Um, is climate change a bigger X risk or S risk? And does that change how our giving gains strategies and recommendations? Are you saying, are we more concerned about the X or the S here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't have a great answer for you on this. And I don't want to say something that I'm not confident in. I think that my intuition here would be S. I think most EAs think that um, climate change is not likely to make us all go extinct, but it will cause a lot of suffering. That being said, I think as we sort of talked about it at the beginning of this presentation, it's not like the priority X risk for long-termists or S risk either. So I think that we think about it less in that frame of, is this an X or an S and more in the frame of, 
there's a lot of money here and there's a lot of potential to make it do more good than it's already doing and cause less than it is currently doing. Yeah. Um, the next question comes from Nikki. Um, they ask, on deforestation, many countries have targets to eliminate illegal deforestation but struggle with implementation. Do you at all, do you look at all at interventions that might support these efforts or is your analysis on preventing deforestation mostly focused on reducing demand for meat? It, we did look at that spectrum and then we landed on the reducing demand for meat as where we thought was the highest priority for us at this time in terms of our value add and in terms of the neglectedness and importance of that approach. And that's because, like you said, a lot of countries are having trouble stopping illegal deforestation. I mean, you look at like Brazil, right? Technically, the Amazon is not supposed to be cut down all the time, but, you know, either the person in power is not resourcing those agencies appropriately or they are and it is just very difficult. Both of those things have happened in the recent past. And that we think is because of meat demand in a lot of ways, right? It would not be so difficult and ranchers would not be trying so hard to cut down the Amazon if there were not intense demand for their products and for their for what they're exporting. And so we think that reducing meat demand is going to actually make it easier for countries to not have illegal deforestation. But yeah, there are definitely other approaches to that. And those are just not ones that we've prioritized at the moment. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the next question, and we have time for maybe one or two more if people want to send them in, um, are what technologies are you supporting at the R&D stage? Um, Matthew would find it helpful if you could be extremely specific, but we also know you might not be able to be. Um, I cannot be extremely specific because a lot of our technology recommendations are coming out in a month. Have I mentioned that you can sign up for a newsletter? <laughs> if you go to our website, givinggreen.earth, and you scroll down to the very bottom, there's a little sign up, and then it will tell you what technologies they are. I, I'll stop doing the shameless plug because I know that's not the point, but we are looking at a variety of things. So far, we have supported technology in terms of policy that supports technology. So we've supported Cleaner Task Force, which works on things like advanced nuclear and carbon capture. We've supported Carbon 180, which is working on carbon removal, things like that. But we as an organization do not make technology grants, if that makes sense. I don't know if that was what you were asking, but we're supporting other organizations that do support technology, basically. Yeah, great. Um, and... The last question is, um, what do you have any pieces of advice for the audience? Very, very broad. Um, if I have any advice, I guess, like, if you're here, you're interested in climate and presumably in climate giving. And if you're here, you're probably very thoughtful about how you do it and you take a skeptics approach, which I think is a highlight of, you know, being able to work in an EA space. And so I guess, again, personal statement here and not giving green, but I feel like if you're interested in climate, I would just start, like, even if you're not 100% sure what you want to work on or where you think you should give. There are resources out there. We are one of them. 
And that will help you determine like what your values are and like where you feel comfortable giving your money and where you want to see the most impact in the world and what that means to you. So is a great last piece of advice um with that we're just out of time so thank you so much emily for the talk thank you everyone for attending yeah thanks everyone